We're going to be completing our study of 1 John this evening, in the evenings. And this evening we will look at verse, verses 6 through 21, the end of the chapter, of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 21. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar, because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we ask that You would use the truth of Your word, that You would use it this evening. Show us, O Lord, more of Yourself. Show us the Lord Jesus Christ. Show us the greatness that you are and that you have done. Lord, we ask for your blessing this evening. By the power of your word and spirit, change us, O Lord. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
as we come to the end of this first letter from the Apostle John, there is a wonderful irony to the book and to the problems that John addresses. One would think immediately that the problems that John addresses would be of of so long ago that they would be of such a different age that they would not speak to us in our time, would not speak to us in our need in the contemporary church. But it is the great blessing of God's word and it is the truth of the nature of man that the problems that John addresses are exactly the kinds of problems that we need addressed in our day and age. John's problems that he has amongst the believers are contemporary problems. And we have seen this throughout the letter. As we come now to the conclusion of it, John is going to begin now to emphasize the nature of the truth and of God's testimony to the truth. So this evening, let's begin by looking at verse 6 and a difficult part of this passage as John describes those those who testify to the truth of who Jesus is. Now, as we think about the truth of who Jesus Christ is, we have to understand that John is writing this truth so that we might know our faith is genuine. Throughout this book, John has given us several tests of a genuine faith. There was the test of love, in which John asked us, do we love the brethren? If we don't, then our faith is not genuine. There was the test of doctrine. Do we profess the truth of God's word? If we don't, then the truth is not in us. And then there was a test of obedience. Do we obey God's word as he gives it to us? Again, we cannot say we know the Lord Jesus Christ and not love the brethren and not love the truth and not love God's commands. And John has summed all of this up, all of these tests... (coughs) in how we relate to Jesus. He said in chapter 4 that the false spirits are those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. But he said true believers confess that Jesus comes from God. Earlier in this chapter, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, has been born of God. And then again in verse 5, he says... Who is the one who overcomes except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, this is what it means to be a Christian. Others can change the definition of what it means to be a Christian. They can talk about what we do for society. They can talk about following the latest belief or fad. But really, what John tells us is the Christian life starts here with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Other things flow from it, but this is where the Christian life starts. This is why in our membership vows, for those who join themselves covenantally to the church, we ask them if they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. This is the beginning of the Christian life. And so what John tells us is, is that we have the truth before us. We have the truth because the truth is fundamentally important. We must be sure that we have it right. 
We must be the kind of people who investigate the truth and who hear from the witnesses. We must look for the truth in reality and not just hope vaguely. And John tells us that there is a triple testimony. He says that Jesus came by water and blood. And there, is, there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Now this passage is notoriously one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament. There are two difficulties with the passage. The first difficulty is textual. Some of you may have the authorized version, the King James translation, or a new King James translation. And you may be looking at what I read and said, you missed something, Pastor. There's a piece missing. Because verse 7 says, there are three that testify, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And then there are three that bear witness in the earth. And that is the Spirit and the water and the blood. So there is... A problem because there seems to be a part of our text that we're not sure if it's a part of our text. Let me see if I can answer why our translation doesn't include this Trinitarian passage. It's famously called the Johannine comma. That is a phrase in the first epistle of John. And what has happened is when Erasmus, a scholar in the Renaissance period, was putting together the very first comprehensive Greek manuscript for the New Testament. He came to this passage and he could not find in all of the Greek manuscripts he had this phrase. But the problem was it was already included in the authorized Latin version of the New Testament, the Vulgate. And so Erasmus, being the scholar that he was, didn't want to include it because he said it's not in the Greek text. And the church was in an uproar because their official version had this language. And Erasmus famously said, well, if you can find a Greek manuscript in which it occurs, I'll put it in. And lo and behold, that very year was produced a Greek text that had that phrase in it. And so Erasmus said, well, I guess I have to follow through on my word and I'll put it in. But you see, Many scholars throughout the ages have not found that this text is original. It doesn't occur in any Greek text earlier than the 12th century. It actually only occurs in three or four texts. Now, I'm going into all this detail because I don't want you in the slightest fashion to doubt your Bibles. And the one thing that I can say is this text that is missing in your translation is completely consistent with the doctrine of the Bible. Now, it is also unnecessary. We don't need it to prove the doctrine of the Trinity. And so therefore, don't let this one small difficulty cast doubt on your faith in God's Word. Now, there's another difficulty that's actually harder to deal with. And that is, what is John saying here? What is the water and the blood and the Spirit? And how do they testify to Jesus? Now, as you can imagine, whenever there is a difficulty... Scholars love to leap into the breach. Commentators are all over the place on this. Some think it refers to the water and blood that flowed from Jesus' side at his death. Others, especially at the time of the Reformation, think it is a reference to the sacraments, with the water referring to baptism and the blood referring to the Lord's Supper. 
But I think the commentators who view it in a third way have the best case. And that is that it is historical evidence of Jesus and who he is. And so by the water testifying to Jesus, we mean Jesus in his baptism. That in the baptism of Christ, he was testified to be the Son of God. And you can see how this comes about as the Father testifies in the baptism of Christ, this is my beloved Son. The blood, of course, refers to the testimony that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ through his atoning death. Through a death that could not keep him, but he rose from the dead. And the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit who is upon Jesus himself. It is the inward testimony of the Spirit to us as to the events that Jesus took part in. That they are true and right and historical. You see, John wants us to put our feet down firmly on solid ground. He wants us to understand that the truth of who Jesus is, is grounded in history. He is opposing, you may recall, a group of heretics called the Gnostics. You may remember that they thought that everything that was fleshly or material was bad. Spiritual good, material bad. And so because that's true, a material Christ is bad. That's why John has said that they are heretics who will not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. And so the Gnostics believed that Jesus became the Christ at his baptism and that the Christ departed from Jesus before his death because we can't have the Spirit die. But you see, John says, that's not the truth. The truth is that Jesus has always been the Christ. That at his birth, he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And that it was revealed, it is by the baptism of Christ. It is by the death of Christ that we see who Jesus is. He was revealed to be the Messiah. And this testimony, John says, is God's testimony. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Now, you may not realize it, but think about it for a moment. That you live every day of your life based on the testimony of men. You take a route with your car because men testify that there's traffic along a certain route. You buy certain products because people review them and testify that they are good. Or you do not buy others because the testimony is that they're bad. We trust the testimony of what goes on in our nation through news reporting, through the accounts of others. You see, we cannot live our lives without trusting at some level in the testimony of men. And what John says is, If you live your whole life by the testimony of men, how much more should you by the testimony of God? For God's testimony is a far greater weight than man's. We should live on the testimony of God because of who God is, that he is truth himself, and that he speaks words of truth. We should live on the testimony of God because who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, and that he has testified To the Lord himself. You see, we cannot fashion Jesus into our own image. This is very popular today. 
that people are willing to believe in Jesus as long as they can define who Jesus is. If he's just a teacher, or if he's somehow a revolutionary, or if he's a politician, or he's an ideal in people's minds. They're willing to believe in that as long as they get to define who Jesus is. And what John says is, the testimony of God is true, and it tells us who Jesus is. The second thing that John tells us is that we have a response to the truth. We see this in verses 10 through 13. In verse 10, John says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. There is only one way to respond to the testimony of God. Now you see, this again is not popular in our society today. Often people want to avoid the consequences of the testimony of who Jesus is. They'll speak in terms of relativism. Well, believing in Jesus might be right for you, but it's, it's just not right for me. People decide that they want to find a way to be neutral about Jesus. To not believe the testimony of who he is, but they want to hedge their bets just in case there is something to this Jesus business. They want to know that they're on everybody's good side. They somehow believe that they can be neutral with respect to Jesus. That they can hedge their bets. But you see, John... Now remember, John is the apostle of love. John looks at us lovingly and he says, there are only one of two choices you can make. You either believe the testimony of God or you call him a liar. There is nothing else that you can do. You see, John wants us to understand this because he wants us to choose and he wants us to believe the testimony of God concerning Jesus. He wants us to know it deep in our hearts to make a change in our lives and who we are. And that's why the choice is so stark. He says, whoever doesn't believe God calls him a liar. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Now this is not something that we like to say in polite society. We don't like to walk up to someone and say, you're a liar. We don't even like to walk up to someone and say, you're calling me a liar. That's just not polite. We just sort of pretend those statements weren't made. We, we work around the statements and the impact that they have. But if you think about it, what John says makes perfect sense. Because if God has spoken about Jesus, and if God's testimony about Jesus is that He is the Christ, the Son of God, then if we don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we are saying God is lying to us. There's no other way around it. The Lord has given to us a clear truth. And we can either choose to believe that truth or not to believe it. And in not believing it, we call God a liar. You cannot be neutral on the question of Jesus Christ. Either you believe God or you don't. And this belief affects the way we live. John puts it this way in verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in His Son. 
You see, the testimony is not just about who Jesus is. The testimony is also about what he has done for us. And what he has done is to bring to us eternal life. And John tells us a bit about this eternal life. He tells us that it is not something that we can earn. Do you see that? Because John says eternal life is given to us by God. It is a gift of God. It is not something we can earn or buy or get or obtain. It is a gift from God himself. John also reminds us that eternal life is found nowhere other than in Christ. This life is in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a very exclusive statement. You cannot find eternal life in Buddha. You cannot find eternal life in Nirvana. You cannot find eternal life in science. You cannot find eternal life in Allah. You can only find eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now this is not a very popular opinion today. We would much rather prefer that all roads lead to eternal life and to God. Because then we don't have to make any hard choices. Then we don't have to live out what we believe. We can do whatever we want. We can change our belief system willy-nilly each and every week. But that's not the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word from the apostle of love is that unless you are found in Jesus Christ, you are lost and you do not have eternal life. The third thing that John tells us about this eternal life is that it is something that we have now. Now that's difficult to put your mind around, isn't it? As we battle illness and sore joints and difficulties. To know that we have eternal life right now, it certainly doesn't really feel like eternal life, does it? But what John is telling us is that this is a present possession that we have. That we cannot lose eternal life and that by being in Christ, we have eternal life. Eternal life is something that we can know that we have. We know because God has told us. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, the purpose for John writing, the purpose actually of the whole of the scriptures to declare who Jesus Christ is, to declare what he has done, to declare that we must believe upon Christ is so that we might not only have eternal life, but that we might know it and be secure in it. What a great blessing it is to know that we are secure. To know that nothing can be pulled out from us. And this assurance comes to us from the truth itself. We see this in verses 14 and following. The truth brings to us an assurance that makes us confident. The first kind of confidence that John talks about is confidence in prayer. He says in verse 14, And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You see, this reminds us that if we believe in Jesus, then we belong to Jesus. And this has its own sets of consequences. Knowing the truth gives us assurance. And we experience the blessings of the truth. The first of this is prayer. 
The truth gives us a confidence in prayer. It gives us a boldness in prayer that we know that God will hear us when we pray. And we know that he will want to answer. And that is because of our relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there is one qualification that Paul set, or excuse me, that John sets forth. Prayer is not a magic trick. It is not a way to trick God into giving us what we want. Prayer is based on the relationship we have with God. Prayer is not a way for us to change God, to get Him to get behind what we want, no matter what the consequences, no matter whether they are in accordance with His will or not. Prayer is about aligning ourselves up with the will of God. But it is also more than that. Because prayer is the way that things change in the world. Not because we must change God's mind, but because that is the means that God has decreed to bring about changes in the world. God tells us that we are to pray. And that in our prayers, we will see Him at work. And we have confidence in our prayers that they're more than just rote sayings. They are, the, they are our prayers that God longs to hear and that He uses in His divine wisdom and plan to bring about His will and to bring us into accord with His will. After all, this is exactly how Jesus prayed. Your will be done. That's what John means when he says we must pray in accordance with the will of God. We also see this in how we are to pray for others. John says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, John is going past his quota here. Usually one really difficult text at a time is enough. This is a second really difficult task. Everyone asks that. You may have thought of this. Someone has walked up to you and said, what's the sin unto death? What's the sin we're not supposed to pray for? And again, because it's difficult, there are scholars all over the place on this. Some try to take the easy route of saying, it's just a really, really, really bad sin. Of course, the problem with that is, it depends on who's defining really, really, really bad. It could be any type of sin, and it could change from person to person. So I don't think that is what it is. Others think it is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is, ascribing the works of the Spirit to the devil, as we see Jesus condemning in the Gospels. Still others view it as apostasy, as turning from the faith, turning their back on Jesus and never returning. But I think those who pose a fourth way describe it best. If we think about this context here, what is John asking us to do? He's asking us to pray for others who are caught in a sin. Now that in and of itself is difficult for you and me to do. We are far more prone to gossip about a sin. We are far more prone to stay away from someone who is caught in a sin. What John says is, we are to go and engage with them. We are to pray for them that they would be delivered from that sin. 
And so I think most likely what John views here as the sin unto death is desiring that God would save us or someone apart from faith in Christ. Now, you may say to yourself, no one does that. Yes, we do. Even Christians, don't we? We all have that relative or that friend that we think, Lord, couldn't you just save them? I know that they, they won't trust Christ. I know that they don't want to crack a Bible, but I just I love them so much. Wouldn't you please save them? And sometimes in our heart of hearts, we would be, we would be willing to settle for God saving them from hell, even if they don't believe in Jesus and love Him, just so that they would be spared the punishment of hell and the agony of death. But you see, what John says here is, we are not to pray for that. We are not to pray for that sin unto death. That way is the way of death. Any way that does not lead to Jesus is the way of death. A second thing that we have confidence in is that we belong to God. We see this in verses 18 and 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. You see, we know we belong to God, and this gives us confidence and hope in the fight against sin. Do you struggle daily with sin? Do you wake up and wonder how you're going to fail your Lord today? Do you, as you go throughout the day, wonder why you possibly fell into that pattern again? Why you said those words you thought you would never say? Why you did something that you wish you hadn't have done? You see, what John says is there's hope for you and me. There's hope in the battle against sin, in the battle to kill sin, in this daily struggle. And that's because God is doing a work in us to defeat sin. We belong to God, and so therefore God is killing sin in us. We also have a confidence, because we belong to God, that we are safe. God protects us from sin, and He protects us from the evil around us. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, does that mean that no harm will ever come to us? No. But it means that we will not fall. That God will keep us up. That He will bear us through difficulties and challenges. That He will carry us through the evil that is in the world around us. It gives us an assurance that God will never abandon us or let us go. This is at the heart of the truth of the Reformation. That not only can we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, but we can have assurance. Assurance that by believing in Jesus, we belong to God and He will never let us go. We have a great confidence of God's love. These tests of truth bear a practical benefit to us. We know we are safe and secure in the Lord. Lastly, We have a confidence in Jesus himself. We have a confidence that we know who Jesus is. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. 
You see, Jesus is the one who has given us this understanding. And think of this. Jesus has given this understanding to us so that we might know who he is. He has done this so we might have eternal life. That we know who Jesus is in truth. And in doing so, we can then keep from idols. This is what John tells us at the very end of this letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We can keep ourselves from idols because they have no draw to us. We know who Jesus is. And we know we are Jesus's. We know these idols are false. And this includes all false views of Jesus Christ. In conclusion, we must know who Jesus Christ is. God provides us with that testimony. If we believe and trust in Jesus, then our lives will be changed. Both now and eternally. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony that you have given of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Spirit, for the way you testify of the things of Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the way in which you reveal yourself to us that we might know you and know we are secure. Lord, we ask this evening that you would fill our hearts with love for the Savior, that we would long to be with Him, that we would long to know Him more and more. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.